Hello, 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 and welcome back to Netflix, Coffee, and Questioning Humanity. Today I wanted to do a deep dive, very similar to my evolution of America's Next Top Model, but not as intense, and something that's a little bit more recent, I guess you could say. And when you think of recent success stories and recent hits when it comes to streaming, you think of Squid Game. The themes reflected in Squid Game came through clear as day to international viewers despite a language barrier and a very fucking bad dub. This episode will obviously contain spoilers for Squid Game, so if for some reason you have yet to see this show and you don't want spoilers, please turn back now. Watch Squid Game. It's great. You will not regret it. But with all that said, let's roll the sirens and sip some coffee. Friendly reminder that this is an explicit podcast, which means I may discuss explicit content while most certainly using explicit language. So little ears, those easily offended, and my mom and dad may want to bow out. Now, on with the show. I am drinking the coolest coffee right now. My dear, dear friend Natasha, she sent me a care package a little bit ago, and it had these three crazy cool horror-themed coffees. They're two ounces, just beautiful, perfect size to try. The brand is called Coffee Shop of Horrors, which is just perfect, right? And this flavor is called Bigger Boat. It's the New England blend, obviously Jaws, and obviously I'm a New England gal. And it's a medium roast. Fucking delicious, by the way. On their website, I'm looking at the prices. They have different sizes, of course, but the two ounce bags are around $3. So that's really not bad at all. It's great quality, great value. If you want to check out their flavors, their website is coffeeshopofhorrors.com. Let's begin with the basics, shall we? What is the show Squid Game? Squid Game consists of one season of nine episodes. The series was released on Netflix in its entirety worldwide on September 17th, 2021. The series revolves around a contest where 456 players, all of whom are in deep financial debt, risk their lives to play a series of deadly children's games for the chance to win a 45.6 billion won prize. The creator and director, Hung Dung Hyuk, came up with the idea of Squid Game, which is a common Korean kids game, based on his own financial struggles he faced earlier in his life, as well as the class disparity in South Korea and capitalism. Household debt in South Korea is over 100% of the country's GDP. Housing is expensive while secure jobs are scarce and everyday citizens feel like it's a place where they simply cannot get ahead. Competition is ruthless for spots at the top of universities and choice positions in chables. And chables are like large industrial conglomerates that are run and controlled by either one person or one family in South Korea. The resulting inequality has become a major theme in Korean culture, which was also very prominent in Parasite. Fantastic movie. Parasite was unreal. Before we deep dive into Squid Game, let's learn more about the events that led up to this masterpiece being released. Hwang Dong-hyuk was born on May 26, 1971 in Seoul, South Korea. Hwang enrolled in an MFA in film production at USC's School of the Cinematic Arts. By then, the Seoul native already held a BA in communications from Seoul National University, which is the most prestigious university in the country. And he had credits from writing and directing short films such as Our Sad Life and A Puff of Smoke. Huang was quoted as saying, I was greatly interested in social issues as an undergraduate, so I would often take part in the demonstrations. 
I took up filmmaking because I was so frustrated by all these unresolved social issues I saw. Around 2008, Huang had already tried unsuccessfully to get investments for a different movie script that he had written. And he, his mother, and his grandmother had to take out loans to stay afloat. But even then, they still struggled amid the debt crisis within the country. He spent his free time in a South Korean manga cafe reading Japanese survival manga such as Battle Royale and Liar Game. Huang compared the character's situation in these works to his own current situation and considered the idea of being able to join such a survival game to win money to get him out of debt. Which, of course, led him to write a film script with that concept throughout 2009. Yes, 2009. Huang also shared that he had a small little office above a gas station, and he drew direct inspiration from the music figures that are actually singing Fly Me to the Moon. Those figures were actually in the room with him while he wrote that famous scene. And it really turned out to be an incredible contrasting scene. The cheerful little figurines playing Fly Me to the Moon while hundreds of people were being shot dead during Red Light, Green Light. It made the song and the moment very, very, very eerie. And the fact that he actually was looking at those figurines and listening to Fly Me to the Moon over and over and over again while he wrote that scene is just, it really shows. It fits so perfect. Huang stated, I wanted to write a story that was an allegory or fable about modern capitalist society, something that depicts an extreme competition, somewhat like the extreme competition of life. But I wanted to use the kind of characters we've all met in real life. Huang feared the storyline was too difficult to understand and bizarre at the time. Huang tried to sell his story to various Korean production groups and actors, but had been told it was too grotesque and unrealistic. So with no biters, Huang put the script on the back burner and worked on other projects instead. Before Squid Game, Huang had not only profound career success with other films, but his films had societal impact. They were also critically acclaimed as well as loved by audiences around the world. In 2011, he adapted the novel The Crucible by Gong Ji-young. I apologize if any of my pronunciations thus far have been horrible. I'm doing my best. I don't want to be like, sorry, 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 after every time. So just know in advance that I am trying my best. But anywho, it is based on events that took place at Gwangju Inhua School for the Hearing Impaired, where young deaf students were the victims of repeated sexual assaults by faculty members over a period of five years in the early 2000s. Depicting both the crimes and the court proceedings that let the teachers off with minimal punishment, the film sparked public outrage upon its September 2011 release, which eventually resulted in the reopening of the investigations into the incidents. With over 4 million people in Korea having watched the film and a whopping 30 million made at the box office, the demand for legislative reform eventually reached its way to the National Assembly of South Korea where a revised bill dubbed the Dogani Bill was passed in late October 2011 to abolish the statute of limitations for sex crimes against minors and the disabled. So not only a huge career win, but how amazing is it to have that impact because of your work directly? In 2015, he had another hit on his hands with the South Korean comedy drama Miss Granny, which he had a writing credit on and he directed. After opening in theaters on January 22nd, 2014, it became a box office hit with over eight and a half million tickets sold. And his most recent project before Squid Game was in 2017. The Fortress is a 17th century Korean drama that grossed 29 million worldwide. This guy was no slouch before Squid Game. 
The film was released in South Korean cinemas and topped the box office on its opening day with almost 450,000 viewers. According to the film's distributor, CG Entertainment, by the second day of its release, the film had accumulated more than 1 million admissions. The Fortress was also the opening film at the second London East Asia Film Festival. It won a slew of awards at the Korean Association of Film Critics Awards, Korean Film Producers Association Awards, Asian Film Awards, and way more wins and many, many nominations as well. The Fortress was very successful. So how did the magical partnership with Huang and Netflix come to be? In the 2010s, Netflix had seen a large growth in viewership outside of North America and started investing in productions in other regions, including Korea. Ted Sarandos, co-CEO of Netflix, stated in 2018 that they were looking for more successes from overseas productions. Quote, The exciting thing for me would be if the next Stranger Things came from outside America. Right now, historically, nothing of that scale has ever come from anywhere but Hollywood, unquote. Netflix had opened up a division in Asia in 2018, and while they were still operating out of a temporary leased office in Seoul, Huang actually brought his script that he had on the back burner to their attention. Kim Min-yong, one of Netflix's content officers for the Asian regions, recognized Huang's talent from The Fortress and his other films that did really well, and upon seeing the script for Squid Game, knew that they needed it for the service. Kim said, quote, We were looking for shows that were different from what traditionally made it, and Squid Game was exactly it. Huang described the work as a story about losers, which is ironic because that's kind of a tagline for Stranger Things and they were saying they were looking for the next Stranger Things. I just put that together as I was reading my notes. So interesting. I guess if you want a major smash hit on Netflix, just make a show about losers. The names of the characters, Song Ji-han, Cho Sang-woo, and Il-nam were all based on Huang's childhood friends, as well as the character named Huang Jun-ho, who was also a childhood friend in real life with an older brother named Huang In-ho. The two main characters, Ji-han and Sang-woo, were based on Huang's own personal experiences and represented two sides of himself. Ji-han shared the same aspects of being raised by an economically disadvantaged single mother in Seoul, while Sang-woo reflected on Huang having attended Seoul National University with high expectations from his family and his neighborhood. Further, Jihan's background was inspired by the organizers of the Songyang Motor Labor Strike of 2009 against mass layoffs. With the Netflix order, the film concept was expanded out to a nine-episode series. Kim stated that there was just so much more than what was written in the 120-minute format, so they worked together and turned it into a series. Huang wrote all of the series himself, taking nearly six months to write the first two episodes alone, after which he turned to friends to get input on moving forward. Huang had initially written the series as eight episodes, which was comparable to other Netflix shows, but found that the material for the last episode was longer than he planned. Huang said he was able to expand the script so that it could focus on the relationships between people and the stories that each of those people had. Initially, Netflix had named the series Round 6 rather than Squid Game, as Hong had suggested. Netflix thought that the name Squid Game would be familiar to Korean viewers from the children's game, but it wouldn't resonate because not many people would get it outside of Korea. But if it was titled Round 6, it would be self-described and would let viewers know that this is a competition show. As production continued, Huang pushed on the service to use Squid Game instead, which Kim said its cryptic name and unique visuals helped draw in curious viewers. 
Regarding his return to the project, Huang commented, It's a sad story, but the reason why I returned to the project is because the world 10 years from then has transformed to a place where these unbelievable survival stories are so fitting. And I found that this is the time when people will call these stories intriguing and realistic. So crazy, because people actually can consider Squid Game realistic right now. Insane. Huang further believed that the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 and 2021 impacted the economic disparity between classes in South Korea and said that all of these points made in the story were very realistic for people compared to a decade ago. And in September 2019, Netflix formally announced they would produce Huang's work as an original series. Going back to what Huang has said about expanding the script, he said he wanted to focus on the relationships between people and the stories each of the people had. I think it's safe to say that this was a brilliant choice because the characters we saw in Squid Game had very realistic struggles. Perhaps they were amped up a bit for TV, but those struggles and relationships were deeply personal, and I think they resonated a lot with viewers. We have Song Ji-hun, who is a divorced chauffeur and a gambling addict. He lives with his mother and struggles to support his daughter financially. He participates in Squid Game to settle many debts and to prove himself financially stable enough to have custody of his daughter. And to even further the stakes, his daughter is set to leave for the United States with her mother and stepfather. Squid Game was very interesting casting-wise. Huang cast Lee Jung-jae as Ji-hun to destroy his charismatic image portrayed in his previous roles. And I don't think he means charismatic as good, by the way, because I had no idea who this actor was before Squid Game. So I looked into it and I'm like, oh, was he like, you know, some superhero or like a dad? No, 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 no. He made his claim to fame by being a villain in his roles. That's like his trademark. Wong wanted Jung Jae to look more like a, quote, clumsy loser who didn't care much for his looks. So when he says charismatic, he means like the button up bad guy, you know, wearing the suits and the slick hair. And he's got the really white teeth, you know, the character who's a little too handsome to be the villain. Then there was Cho Song Woo, the former head of an investment team at a securities company. He is wanted by the police for stealing money from his clients and racking up massive debts from bad investments. Kong Soibyuk is a North Korean defector. She enters the game to pay broker to rescue her parents across the border and to buy a house for her reunited family to live in. The next character, Oh Il Nam, the elderly man with a brain tumor, prefers playing the game as opposed to waiting to die in the outside world. Abdul Ali, a migrant worker from Pakistan who enters the game to provide for his young family after his boss refuses to pay him for months. The actor who plays him, Anupam Tripathi, was actually an acting student while filming and is fluent in Korean. And my personal favorite character, Han Minyo, who was the loud, manipulative woman who, in my opinion, was the heart and soul of Squid Game. You cannot tell me otherwise. Her reasons for entering the game are left unexplained, but she boasts that she was charged five times for fraud, which implies that she's some sort of con woman. Once the cast was in place and production was about to start, that's when the true pressure began. Huang addressed the challenges of preparing for the show, which was physically and mentally exhausting, saying he had foregone dental health while making season one and had to have six teeth pulled by his dentist after production was complete. The cast felt that pressure too and had to follow some really intense rules and regulations. 
The actors couldn't consume any alcohol while in production. They also had to stay extremely fit to keep up with the heavy strength and agility that was called for. For the role of Doc Sue, the rough kind of gangster of the show with the really sick fucking snake tat on his face, the actor who plays him, Hyo Sung Tai, he had to gain 40 pounds for the role because it was very important for his character to have an intimidating frame. The weight gain was a significant change for his body and performing intense scenes like the tug of war one took a real toll on him. During that scene in particular, Song Tai threw up multiple times and suffered extreme exhaustion from the physical discomfort. The filming schedule was wild, which isn't totally unheard of when making a show or a film. They had some really early mornings and really late, late nights. The thing with Squid Game that made it even more intense was that they had a really short filming schedule. Like they had a very tight schedule to get it all in. So their breaks that they had were extremely short in between takes. No individual interviews were allowed unless cleared with producers. They really wanted complete control over the marketing and wanted to protect the stars of the show. It sounds crazy, but running a show of that scale is tough, and I don't think it was necessarily uncalled for. I do think it was pretty smart, even if it sounds cuckoo. The cast couldn't give any information away to anybody. Their contracts required full confidentiality. Not even the slightest detail could be revealed. As I mentioned earlier, Huang stated that he wanted to write a story that was a social allegory or fable about modern capitalist society, something that depicts an extreme competition, somewhat like the extreme competition of life. And I would say he did just that. The entire series is one big allegory of South Korea's experience of climbing the ladder of economic development. It uses children's games that eerily parallel the challenges that South Korea had to endure during its economic rise in a masterful way. In the first game of Red Light, Green Light, for example, an enormous animatronic girl announces when contestants can run forward and when they must stop. Very similar to the rules laid down by the World Bank and International Monetary Fund when countries can advance and when they cannot. This was not something I knew about. I had no idea what this was. So I only have very little knowledge based on cursory searches. But based on what I've seen, it's a very clear parallel. In the second round, the contestants play a game involving Dalgona, which is a sugary honeycomb toffee candy that was once popular as a Korean street food. Traditionally, if the person buying the Dalgona managed to eat around the shape in the middle without breaking it, they would receive a second free candy. That's the challenge given to players in Squid Game. But the reward for their successful eating is survival. And the punishment for failure is death. Another really eerie contrast between childhood naivety and innocence and adulthood horrors and depravities. Like really in your face. Some speculate the third game, Tug of War, that pits the teams one against the other, represents South Korea pulling alongside its regional allies, or to stick with the allegory, their teammates that industrialized in tandem and again, sticking with the metaphor, beat teams from other part of the world. Others say it has more of a cultural significance in Korea where variations of tug of war have been played in festivals and community celebrations for many, many years, especially within the agricultural areas. The game is often played between the east and west sides of villages, with the winners supposedly earning a superior harvest that season. For me personally, I feel like this was a segue. It's kind of like group versus group, and after this point of tug of war, it's player versus player, rather than players versus squid game people who made up the game. Does that make sense? 
it's kind of like stepping stones in a way. The first stepping stone was, okay, it's all of you against the animatronic girl who I guess would represent the fucking Squid Game as a whole, like the people who created it. And then there's the Dogani game, which is again, like the players by themselves. It's not another player that's forcing them to cut out an umbrella out of this honeycomb. It's still against the Squid Game bosses, the Squid Game gods. And then tug of war, it starts to slowly be like, okay, nope. It's not just against the squid game gods. You're against each player as well, but not player versus player versus player yet. You're in a group of players versus another group of players. And then from that point forward, it's just player versus player. You're on your own against other players being your direct competition. I don't know if that made any sense, but that's the best way I can describe it. And that's just my personal opinion. I could be way off. I feel like it's a really clever way to foreshadow the backstabbing between the players that consume the remainder of the show. Round four of Squid Game, which is marbles, which different players can choose to play in different ways. Contestants match up in pairs like Jihan and the old man Oh Il Nam, and one must win all of the other players' marbles before the time given expires. The contestant without any marbles at the end of the game, of course, dies. Marble games are some of the most ancient and long-standing in known history, dating back thousands of years to ancient civilizations like the Roman Empire. So it's really hard to lay down exactly what this meant. This episode was a slow one, and I think that was done on purpose. This was more to see the relationships up close and personal. The slow pace doesn't mean less anxiety. Certainly the opposite. For me personally, it was one of the more intense episodes. This marbles game forces the players to sort of take control of the situation. And the way they take control is by accepting death, whether they are the ones dying and allow themselves to lose or they are the ones doing the killing. They have to make that decision. It's definitely, in my opinion, the most sinister and mentally tortuous games. So many games are about accepting the lack of control. And this game is all about taking that control. And it's almost like I wanted control, but now I don't know if I want control. It really fucks with your head. The only round of Squid Game that isn't an on-the-nose childhood game is the glass tile game, which sees the contestants making their way across a set of tiles that form a bridge, a bridge across a very deep, dark fall, an abyss, a chasm, a very bad fall underneath that bridge. I don't know how to explain it better than that. You fall, you are going to be a splatter pancake. I would say the game is really similar to Hopscotch, maybe. That's the only kids game I can kind of connect it with unless I'm unaware of a tile game, possibly in Korea, but I didn't see that in my research. I feel like this game is used to represent how severely the competition is rigged against the players at this point. I think that was the purpose of this episode, reminding us that the Squid Game gods are still the villain, still the ones that are running shit. Once we see that one of the contestants can tell the difference between tempered glass and untempered glass by the light reflecting on it, the Squid Game front man, boss man, turn the lights out like a dick. And then they learn, and we as the audience really learn, that they are set up to fail. Many can take this and compare it to everyday life, whether it's in your home or in your school or at your job or in the grand scheme of things, that we the little people are always set up to fail. Even when we figure our shit out, someone's going to turn the lights off on us, you know? Which leads me to compare this particular scene to The Hunger Games, which kills me because I don't want to compare this to anything, especially in a deep dive. But that was so, so Hunger Games when he shut off the light. Not that that was Huang's, you know, inspiration for the scene, obviously, but it brought up similar themes in my mind. 
Squid Game gets its title from the final round of the competition in which Jihan and Sangwoo battle for the ultimate prize. The Squid Game itself is similar to Tag, but with more complicated rules. There are two teams, the offense, who must ultimately reach a specified space at the end of the playing field, and the defense, whose job is to stop that from happening. The game was very popular in Korea in the 1970s and 1980s, when many of the main Squid Game cast of characters would have been children. Huang recalled the Squid Game as, quote, the most physically aggressive childhood game I played in the neighborhood alleys as a kid, which is also why I loved it the most. And because of this, it's the most symbolic game that reflects today's competitive society. So I picked it out as the show's title, unquote. It's a really grim way to end Squid Game, but in the end, it sends Jihan home with 45.6 billion won. The rich entitled foreign VIPs arrive on the island during episode 7 to wager bets on who will live or die while watching the game. I apologize if it feels like I'm explaining things out of order. I just really wanted to explain the games all at once and then go back and kind of pinpoint little details at different points of the timeline throughout. The games had been set up for their enjoyment at the expense of human lives and lives that they consider lesser than theirs. While players that they're watching are struggling to survive and are barely fed, the VIPs are enjoying a lavish spread of food tended to by naked body painted men and women. One of the VIPs even orders a server as if he's a fucking piece of meat. That server just happened to be a policeman who has infiltrated the compound. As we learn later, that turns out to be a very interesting exchange. Squid Game is all about contrast, and that's a huge part of its appeal and what makes it a true masterpiece. The diabolical and deadly consequences of losing a round directly contrast these traditionally fun childhood games. Huang based the narrative on Korean games of his childhood to show the irony of children's games, where obviously it's not important who wins. The competition is just for fun, as opposed to Squid Game, where it's an extreme competition and people's lives are at stake. According to leaked documents, the nine episode run costs 15.5 million to produce, which is about 1.75 million per installment. And the return on that has been extraordinary. Netflix estimates that the series has been watched by 142 million households and boosted their subscriber figures by 4.4 million. And based on all that information, it's said to be worth 650 million to the streaming service. The iconic Squid Game set and costume design was extremely purposeful. The players and soldiers each wore a distinctive color to reduce the sense of individuality and to emphasize the difference between the two groups. The green tracksuits worn by the players were inspired by 1970s athletic wear known as training book. Kyung Sun Che, the set designer, felt that this was her most challenging project, as not only did she have to create something childlike and whimsical, but also creepy and menacing in addition to the safety concerns of the actors. The maze-like corridors we see and the crazy stairs were all inspired by the four-dimensional stair drawings of M.C. Escher, specifically Relativity. These seemingly infinite stairways represented a form of bondage for the contestants. And the complex network of tunnels between the arena, the dorm, and the administrative office was inspired by ant colonies. That is like insane to me. The honeycomb challenge was said to be the hardest props to make, and each character had to have their own prop manager to ensure the correct look for the designs. The actors also said that because the set was contained and there were so many actors, in that small space, it was incredibly hot which made it very difficult. Also in that round, the set showed playground objects that were 
very oversized to make the characters feel smaller and like they were really children in a children's game. The player's dormitory was envisioned with a concept of people who were abandoned on the side of the road which was such an interesting inspiration. The room was designed using white tiles and the curved opening was like a vehicular tunnel. The bed and stairs initially were laid out to look like a warehouse shelves. But as the episodes progressed and people died, the beds were used as defenses. And according to Che, they took the appearance of broken ladders and stairs, implying the players were trapped with no way out. The dinner scene, which was one of my favorite scenes of the entire show, it took place in the eighth episode and was inspired by the art installation, The Dinner Party by Judy Chicago. Fantastic art display if you haven't seen it. It's amazing. The crew spent the most time crafting the set for the marbles game, creating a mix of realism and fakeness as to mirror the life and death nature of the games themselves. This set in particular was designed as a combination of small theatrical stages each stage representing part of player 001's memories. The impressive and extravagant VIP room was one of the last pieces to be designed, and they decided on an animal-based theme for both the costumes and the room. They settled on this because the VIPs are the kind of people who take other people's lives for entertainment and treat them like game pieces. So Che wanted to create a powerful and instinctive look for the room. Most of the sets were a combination of practical sets and chroma key backgrounds. For example, in the glass tile scene, the set was designed as if they were in a circus tent performing for the VIPs, when in reality, they were only five feet off the ground. They used chroma key to simulate the height in post-production. In filming though, that's still pretty far off the ground. Like it made the cast nervous. I'd be nervous. So it didn't take away from the gravity of the situation while acting. The tug of war set, however, was a little bit more intense that was actually set 33 feet off the ground. No, thank you. A lot of the cast had a fear of heights and this scene caused them great anxiety. Of course, we had the iconic robot doll, Yonggi, who is a character that appeared on the covers of Korean textbooks. I did not know that. So creepy. The doll's hairstyle was inspired by Huang's daughter. And obviously the doll has that very creepy song she sings. And it refers to the national flower of South Korea. The use of this familiar, lovable, innocent character was meant to juxtapose memories of childhood and unsettling fear in these players. And I think they did that pretty well. Overall, the set design, the costume and wardrobe, the themes, the games themselves, all of it had such a deeper message. And even those of us who are not from Korea and weren't familiar with some of these traditions like the honeycomb game or Yungi, even though those weren't familiar to our childhood, we still recognized that these were very innocent and naive things. We still knew that they were childlike. And we still felt that contrast between the childhood naivety and the diabolical life and death consequences of these games, whether we were conscious of it or not. And I think that's what really had an impact on people, along with the stories each character had that felt very real and not too far-fetched. When Huang was writing this series for Netflix, his goal was to have it reach the most watched show in Netflix in the United States for just one day. Squid Game was number one in 94 countries. Within just 28 days after airing, the show pulled in 111 million viewers, surpassing Bridgerton to be the most watched Netflix original series. The show has received critical acclaim with a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. And obviously, audiences around the world have felt equally as impressed by Squid Game. It has become a pop culture phenomenon. 
Huang has spoken a bit about the potential ideas for season two, which yes, we are getting a season two and perhaps an entire Squid Game universe. CEO of Netflix Ted Sarando said the Squid Game universe has just begun. That was a direct quote. And like, obviously, you just made so much fucking money off this. Of course, you're going to milk it. Milk it. Huang has said that it's kind of hard to think of the second season because so many of the cast members that we love died in season one, obviously. But he said, quote, I think the issues with police officers is not just an issue in Korea. I see it on the global news. This was an issue that I wanted to raise. Maybe in season two, I can talk about this more. And later he confirmed the return of the star of the series, which I mean, it's kind of a spoiler, but not really. He said Jihan will come back and he will do something for the world. Squid Game season two does not have a release date yet, but I'd be surprised if we saw it anytime earlier than spring 2023. They need some time to perfect this and to have a really solid universe, at least roadmapped. Speaking of expanding the universe, in October 2021, Kim Min-yong said that the company was looking into a possible video game adaptation of the series. Netflix has also licensed Squid Game for merchandising, and Funko has also stated they plan to release a set of Squid Game-themed Funko Pops in May of this year. Huang has big plans. He doesn't want to be known as just the Squid Game guy, so he is, you know, bugging Netflix to screen those three big movies that he had come out. And he also says he has a high-level movie in mind that he wants to put out before season two of Squid Game, so I'm excited to see if that happens. I'm doubtful, but I mean, he's got Netflix in the palm of his fucking hand at this point. I love Huang. He keeps it so real. He also said that he has to do a season two if he wants to be as rich as the Squid Game winner. I thought that was awesome. Thank you so much for listening in today. I know this episode was kind of clunky and all over the place, but there was so much information I wanted to pack in. I'm sure I missed something, if not a lot of some things, but this was just so fascinating to me. As always, I really enjoyed making this episode. Be sure to follow the pod on Instagram at NCQH Podcast, my personal Instagram, which is at L-E-A-A underscore M-A-R-Z, and you can follow my TikTok at L-E-A-M-A-R-Z-Z. Korea is a culturally conservative society, therefore heterosexism and homophobia are prevalent in the homes, schools, religious centers, and streets. Consequently, LGBTQ teens are very likely to be in danger of emotional, verbal, and sometimes physical abuse and violence. As a result, they face psychological problems such as depression, low self-esteem, and high risk of committing suicide. Despite the demand, there are no free counseling centers, hotlines, or shelters for Korea for the LGBTQ teens. Street Counseling Phase 1 of Rainbow Teen Safe Space will offer a multidimensional support system, counseling teens for socio-psychological pain and trauma, and restoring relationships between queer teens and their parents and peers. They create a safe space so that queer teens can feel accepted and affirmed. Through surveys and data collected from street counseling, Rainbow Teen Safe Space will make plans to establish a shelter. Simultaneously, they will bring awareness to the needs and dilemma of queer teens in Korea. At globalgiving.org forward slash project forward slash rainbow dash teen dash safe dash space, or you could simply Google Global Giving Project Rainbow Teen Safe Space, it'll pop up. They do have the option to donate once or monthly, and they tell you exactly what your donation will go towards, whether it's a snack or a psychology consultation even healthcare checkups. 
A similar program in America is The Trevor Project. At thetrevorproject.org, the resources are incredible. They have an entire resource center filled with information on everything from sexual health, gender identity, talking about suicide, and diversity in the LGBTQIA young people. They also have their own social media called Trevor Space, which is an affirming online community for LGBTQ young people between the ages of 13 and 24 years old. With over 400,000 members across the globe, you can explore your identity get advice, find support, and make friends in a moderated community intentionally designed for you. Of course, they also have 24-7 help through chat, calls, or texts, ways to get involved, and the option to donate if you are capable and comfortable doing so. A million thank yous again for listening in. Until next time, stay caffeinated, stay streaming, stay strong. 